glad to see all of you here. It just seems like now that the weather is a little better and uh, people are coming back, and we're, we're really thrilled to have you here. I know a lot of you are still watching online. We're glad that you're here with us today, too. Have you ever seen one of those videos, maybe like Funniest Home Videos or something, a kid at Christmas, and he's so excited about opening his present, and, and it's finally his turn, and he unwraps the present, and he looks at this box, and, and you can just tell. You don't even know what's on it yet. You can tell this is look of extreme disappointment when he looks at the box. I mean, he, he thought he was getting one thing. I mean, he told his parents, I want an Xbox for Christmas. He unwraps the box, and it says, fun with yarn. And he's going, what in the world? And that look of excitement turns to disappointment and then kind of anger a little bit. I mean, how in the world could my parents do this to me? They knew exactly what I wanted, and they give me this thing. Do they not love me anymore? Do they just not listen to me when I talk anymore? And there's this look of confusion and then hurt. Why me? But that look turns to anger really quick as the little boy just grabs the box, throws it across the room, runs out the door, and slams the door behind him. Now, we know disappointment as adults, but hopefully we've learned to handle disappointment a little bit better than a child. But I think you know what it's like to be disappointed as a child. We know what it's like to expect something and then get something else, and you just have this this moment of disappointment. I think we're better at disguising that now as adults, but we still know what it's like. I mean, if you're married and you tell your husband, these are the kind of shoes I want and this is the size of shoe I want. But he wants to be creative because you've always told him, just be creative. Don't just ask me what I want, be creative. And so he wants to be creative. And you see the box and you go, it's the size, it's the right size. And you open it up and it's dish towels. I I don't blame him. You told him to be creative, but but we have this disappointment. Or husbands, you've told your wife, what I really want for Christmas is a new set of golf clubs. But you open up your gift and it's nose and ear hair clippers. And and you just think, why, why? And you don't get what you want, you get what you need. And, And that's what happens. And so we swallow the bitterness. We've learned to pretend that everything is just okay, but inside... We are slamming doors and stomping out of the room. And so we know what that's like. Maybe you've even had that experience recently. Maybe you went to college thinking, this is the career I want to go in. And there's a lot of openings in that career. But now you're just about to graduate from college, and there's nothing there. And you don't know for sure what you're going to do. You know you're going to have to move in with your parents, and you don't want that. Well, let me tell you, your parents don't want that either. I mean, this is not a good thing for anybody, but you've taken off the wrapping paper, and this is not what you thought it would be. Or you get married, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of anticipation, and your wedding day is the most incredible day of your life. But then you unwrap the gift. It may take a little while, but it's not what you thought it was going to be, and you're trying to deal with the disappointment. And I think when looking at our own stories, we could all tell some story of a time that we opened the box and it wasn't what we thought it was going to be. And that's the situation as we read through the book of Ruth today. If you're following in the story, it's chapter 9 in the story. But if we had a video camera recording this story, we'd see a lot of different expressions here in this story of the book of Ruth. We'd see joy and disappointment and anger. The story reflects our life stories. And so as you read through the book of Ruth, you might ask, why is this here? It just seems out of place from all the other stories, all the other things that we have read, all the other books. They've got things about judges. They've got things about the nation of Israel. But why is this here? And at first glance, we look at the book of Ruth and go, well, it's just about a family, a normal family. Everything wasn't perfect there. There was some disappointment there, but they weren't royalty. 
why is this even in the Bible? Well, it's a story of a, a husband named Elimelech and his wife Naomi. And I've been on their wedding day. There was a lot of optimism there. And they were looking forward to a lot of happiness. In fact, the name Naomi means sweet or pleasant. And, and that's how she was. I mean, that, that's what describes the story at this point. Naomi was a woman who had a lot to live for. She had a lot of hope. And after she gets married, Naomi has two sons. Life really couldn't be better. I mean, it's unfolding just the way that she would imagine that it would unfold. But when we pick up the story of Ruth, the expression has changed, and there's a lot of confusion here. A famine has come to Israel and so severe that they can't stay where they are. Now, we've never experienced anything like that ourselves. And so we don't really know exactly what they were going through, but let's try to imagine their story. Let's imagine your husband comes home from work one day, and you can tell it hasn't been a very good day, but he doesn't say anything. But you can see on his face that this really hasn't been a great day. And so you sit silently at the dinner table, and you eat. And after he eats, he goes in and turns the television on. But he's not paying attention to anything that's on the television. So nothing is said until finally you're lying in bed, and he breaks the silence, and he says, they let me go at work today. And so you want to console him, you want to encourage him, and you say things like, it'll be okay, it's going to be better, it, it won't last, but it doesn't get better. So six months down the road, you've drained your savings, you've sold your house, you've moved into a small apartment, you, you're down to one car, you've done everything that you can think to do to try to get by and save. Two years later, it's not just you, it's the whole town, it's the whole county has just suffered from this bad economy. And and now you, you think that uh, the most important thing is food. You used to wake up in the morning and, and think, what am I going to retire on? I need to focus on that. What am I going to wear to work today? Now you just think, what am I going to feed my kids? And things have become desperate. And your husband finally says, we can't stay here. We're going to have to move. And we've got to try something different or we're not going to survive. Now, this is the story of what happens to Naomi and her husband. They have to move. They have to try to find something to eat and they can feed their kids. And so they go to this land called Moab. It's not that far away and they're just moving though. They're getting a fresh start. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But you have to understand they are moving away from the promised land. And that was important. That's a part of who they are. That's a part of their identity. And in the promised land, each family had a piece of land that was theirs. And it would be passed down from generation to generation. And you don't just leave your piece of land. And so you must be really desperate to leave your piece of land and, and leave and go to Moab. Now, the people of Moab are the descendants of Sodom, a very pagan culture. And the Moab people don't think much of the Israelites at all. In fact, they're the sworn enemies of God. And so they go to a hostile country because they need some food to eat. And they hear that the ground is more fertile in Moab, and so that's where they go. And I'll bet as they were leaving, Naomi's thinking, you know what? I have lost everything. I've lost my house. I've lost my land. But I've got my husband, and he's a good husband. He really takes care of us well. And I've got my two sons, and they're strong and healthy. And I've got God. I mean, I've got my faith. I've got all that. I'm going to be okay. She even says later that when she left her town, she left feeling full. But they get to Moab, and her husband is sick, and he doesn't get better. He gets weaker and weaker, and he eventually dies. So here she is. She's a widow, a single mom in Moab in this hostile country. The boys grow up, and they fall in love with two Moabite women, Orpha and Ruth, and 
They get married, and I'm sure there was a celebration. There's two weddings going on there. Finally, some good news, Naomi's family. And so these two weddings quickly are followed by two funerals. There wasn't any time for grandkids. After losing her husband, Naomi loses both of her sons, and she's going through this incredible grief. Edgar Jackson defines grief like this. Grief is a silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone who's no longer there. Grief is the emptiness when you eat alone after eating with another for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one who has died. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they're not and they never will be. And some of you get that. You know loss, you know disappointment. Some of you don't know that yet, but you will know that. That's something that we can't escape. And Naomi was experiencing what seemed to be more than her share of loss, just one thing after another. I remember a girl in one of the first youth ministries where I served. Uh, This girl had met the man of her dreams and married this man, and I'd lost contact with her. I mean, we didn't have any internet, no cell phones back then, and so you didn't keep close contact with people. But years later, another friend told me, oh, man, her life has just been a mess. He said she married the man of her dreams, but he died. And she met a new man, and two years later married him, and he died. And about a month later, her mother died. And so a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to meet with her and with her dad. And and listening to her tell the story is just incredible. She had such a, a great attitude about it all. And she described the pain that she went through at that time. And she said so many people wanted to help. But really, unless you've been through this, you just really don't know how to help. They, they don't know what it was like. And they'd say, it's going to be okay. It'll get better. But they had no idea of the loneliness. An elderly Christian woman wrote a poem after her husband died. It's called Broken. This is what she wrote. When you see that pile of wood chips on the floor, that's what's left of the life I had before. When I was loved by you with all your heart, when passion awoke and played its part, Our oneness and purpose, agreement and thought is something that could not be bartered or bought. It seemed to be perfect to have heaven's blessing. Each word, gaze, and touch was a form of caressing. I never had known such love before. Now all that remains is the pile on the floor. It looks to others like I'm doing all right. They don't see the wood chip of crying at night. My family and friends think I'm doing okay. The wood chip is hidden of my struggle each day. So many chips in that pile on the floor, emptiness, loneliness, disappointment, and more. Dreams unfulfilled, plans hung in midair. Love uncompleted beckons, imagining so rare. My life has been broken, nothing fits anymore. There's a big pile of wood chips in the middle of my floor. And this is the feeling, there's nothing left. Everything is broken, just a lot of broken pieces on the floor. And that's how Naomi felt. After losing everything, she decides that she really doesn't have much choice but to go on back home, and so she's hoping things will be better in her hometown. And She says to Ruth and Orpha, her daughter-in-laws, why don't you just stay here? I mean, this is your home place. You're young. You can start over. You can remarry and have a family, but but I really need to go back. And Orpha agrees to stay. I, I think we can understand that, but Ruth refuses to stay. And Ruth says in Ruth 1, 16, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I'll be buried. 
May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And so here's this daughter-in-law saying to her mother-in-law, what you might have heard before. You, if you did, you probably heard it at a wedding when a bride would say that to her husband. But if we're going to be scripturally correct, at the wedding, the bride takes her eyes off her husband and turns toward her new mother-in-law and says, where you go, I will go. Yeah, I don't think that's going to catch on either. But, but, but that's what's going on here. You can see there's a very special relationship being formed between a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. And the Bible says when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so Ruth and Naomi make this difficult trip back. They travel across the mountains to her hometown. And her hometown was Bethlehem. And I think we start to get some indication of why this story is in the Bible. Bethlehem's a town of about 200 people, and when Naomi comes home, it's front page news, and people start talking. Is that her? It doesn't look like her. Is that Naomi? Remember, the name Naomi means pleasant or sweet, and they're saying, is that really her? It doesn't look like her. Naomi says, don't call me that name anymore. The Lord hadn't been that good to me. Here's what she says in Ruth 1.20. Don't call me Naomi, she said to them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. And you can see the expression on her face. She's angry. She's mad at God because God hasn't kept up his end of the bargain. And this isn't a story that went the way it was supposed to go. And she, she knows that. And so she says, look what God has done to me. He's made my life bitter. He's brought misfortune on me. This is all his fault. Does that sound at all familiar? I think each of us can do that. We reach that point where what we hoped for, what we felt God was going to do for us, is not the way that things turned out. And so you read the story of Naomi, and here's the question. What's it about? What's the story all about? When you read it, you conclude the story is about loss. I mean, here's a woman who's really lost everything, her home and her husband and her sons and her land. It's a story about loss, but it doesn't have to be a story about loss. She loses a lot, and she's in incredible pain, but it doesn't have to be about loss. Jerry Sitzer was a man who was driving in his car one day with his family when a drunk driver hit his car, and he lost three generations in a moment. He lost his mom, his wife, and his young daughter, but he wasn't really hurt at all. And he wrote a book about that experience, and the title of the book is Grace Disguised. And in the book, he says, the experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. Now, he can say something like that, and it's pretty powerful because he's been through it. He says the defining moment can be our response to the loss. And the story doesn't have to be about loss. It can be about our response to the loss. In other words, you don't get to decide what roles you play in this story of life, but you get to decide how you play the roles that you were given. And so you reach this point in your story where you decide, is this going to define me? Is this really what it's going to be all about? Is this what my life is about? Is my story going to be about loss? Is that it? Or could it be something different? And that's pretty tough. I think it's hard for Naomi here, and we understand that too. It's hard not to get caught up in that part of the story, and we tend to be disappointed pretty easily. And Naomi says, don't call me sweet, because I'm not sweet. I'm, I'm bitter. I left full. I've come back empty. And there's one word that describes the story of Naomi, 
And it's not the word loss. It's the word redemption, to buy back. See if you can see her story of redemption here. I hope you've read through the whole book of Ruth. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do that today. It's just four chapters long. You can do it in just a few minutes. But if you haven't, here's kind of a summary of what happens next in the story. Things aren't really good for the two ladies in Bethlehem. Naomi feels down and out. And Ruth is reduced to gleaning in the barley fields. Ruth happens to run into a well-known rich man named Boaz, and he likes her right away. And, and Ruth happens to like him as well. And so he offers her all these gleaning privileges as she's gleaning in the field. And Boaz also happens to be a relative of Naomi's late husband. That's going to be important. When Naomi hears about Boaz, what a great guy he is, she makes plans for Ruth to snag him as a husband. And she says, you go visit him in the middle of the night and you lay at his feet. And Ruth does what she's told and Boaz is pleasantly surprised to see this cute girl from the fields really is interested in him. And he tells Ruth that he would love to marry her, but there's another relative even closer to her in-laws than he is. It turns out, though, that guy really is only interested in buying some land. He's not interested in marrying Ruth. And so Boaz is free to marry Ruth, and everybody's happy. That's kind of a, a brief summary of what happens in the next couple of chapters. Naomi thinks she's coming back empty. She feels like God has abandoned her, but if she could just wipe away the tears, she could just see that God is at work here, even through incredible loss. And God is at work redeeming her story. Now, I want to take just for the next few minutes a, a look and see how he redeems the story. He redeems her story of loss, first of all, with an unlikely friendship. God has a way of doing this. When we experience loss, when we experience grief, he'll bring along someone, someone who will give us strength, someone who will encourage us and, and help us along the way. And if you've gone through this in life, you know that many times that's not the person you thought was going to come along and encourage you. And that's true here. I mean, who would have guessed that her daughter-in-law from Moab would be the one that she would build this close relationship with and she'd be connected to her in this way. And there'd be such a strong love between the two of them. In fact, later in the text, when the village gets to know Ruth, even though she's from Moab, they said that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is better than seven sons. That's how close they were. And so in the midst of the grief, she has this friendship that helps redeem the story. It's interesting, though, that we read there that she tries to push Ruth away. She says, you stay here. I'll go by myself. Don't we do that when we're really hurting? A lot of times there's people there, but we try to push them away. A few years ago, I was flying on Southwest Airlines from Chicago to Phoenix, and you know what it's like on Southwest. There's no seat assignments, and so you try to get on and, and grab the best seat you can. Well, I got to board pretty early, and I got on the plane, and I sat on an aisle seat about halfway back, and there was a man about my age on the window seat, and so we were both sitting there, and we started talking to each other, and we leaned in toward that middle seat, so it would look like somebody's sitting in the middle seat, so this isn't available for somebody. And don't give me that look, because you do exactly the same thing when you get on Southwest Airlines. And so we're sitting on the plane. It's not going to be a full flight. They've already told us that, and it's not that full, and so we're pretty comfortable about having this middle seat open. When down the aisle comes this young Asian girl, she's probably... 15 years old, and she's looking around. She's looking really panicky, and she sees our seat, and sure enough, she sits in the middle seat where we're sitting. She's very fidgety. You can tell she's really nervous about this, and when the, the flight attendant comes down the aisle to make sure that we have our phones on airplane mode and make sure we have our seat belts on, she leans into me, and she says, this girl 
has never flown before. She's scared to death, and she doesn't speak any English at all. And I just said, okay, I don't know what I was supposed to do. I don't speak her language. But I at least knew something about this girl. So we're flying. Everything's going pretty well. And we hit some turbulence. And this girl's been trying to sleep this whole flight. We hit some turbulence. And all of a sudden, she leans her head over and puts it on my shoulder. I look over at the guy in the window seat. And he's kind of laughing at me. And we're kind of smiling about the whole thing. And we go on for about 10 more minutes. And we hit more turbulence. And without opening her eyes, she reaches over and grabs his hand. And so we look at each other again. And I'm kind of laughing at him at this point. But I know what was going on. I have a pretty good idea of what she was thinking. She's thinking, I don't speak their language. I've never flown. I'm scared to death. She sees two guys that resemble her grandpa. And so she sits between them because she's thinking, this will be safe. And that's what we do. When we have trouble, we try to reach out and find somebody who maybe has been through this before, who in a way can just let us know everything's going to be okay. And really, that's what the church is all about. God redeems our loss that we have in this fallen world by bringing people into our lives who can say, I've been through this. They can show, hey, it's going to be okay. And so God redeems the loss through this unlikely relationship. We also see he redeems the loss through an undeserved kindness of Boaz. You read this, and you might think it reads kind of weird. It talks about the guardian, the buying of the property, the inheriting the wife, and that's what happens. It's very common in in this culture. But in the promised land, each family had their designated piece of land. And if somebody died, it would fall on the closest relative to redeem that land. And so they would redeem that loss by buying the property, marrying the widow, and then having a descendant with that widow who would then inherit the property of the family. And so Boaz comes along, he says, I'll buy the property and I'll take responsibility for Ruth. Now, this was no small act of kindness. This is no small sacrifice here, especially when you consider Ruth was a Moabite and the men of that area would have nothing to do with her. But here's Boaz who goes out of his way to redeem her. Why would he do that? You know, as we've been reading through the story, turns out that you know the mother of Boaz. Her name is Rahab. Remember Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute. She was a foreigner. She helped the Israelites when they took the promised land. Well, it turns out that Rahab had a son. She named him Boaz. And Boaz grew up to be a a man. He was a man of God. He honored God with his life. And he provided for and protected those who were less fortunate. And so Boaz shows this undeserved act of kindness. God uses that to redeem the story. There's one other thing I want you to see here. He redeems the story with an unpredictable ending. Now, the story ends with a genealogy, and we read there that they gave birth to a son. They named him Obed. Obed gave birth to a son. His name was Jesse. Jesse had a son. They named him David. It's King David. And you read through the genealogy at the end of Ruth, and I hope you said to yourself, it seems like I've heard this before, because you have heard this before. It's in Matthew chapter 1, almost word for word. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because Ruth chapter 4 ends with the genealogy of David, Matthew chapter 1 begins in the same way that Ruth ends, and it points to Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer. Who would have guessed that God was taking all the broken pieces that were laying on the floor and turning them into this incredible piece of art, something very beautiful, So have you ever seen the videos on Funniest Home Videos? You see the kid, 
unwraps the present and he gets mad. There's confusion, there's hurt, there's anger. He throws it across the floor, but it doesn't end like that. The making of your own crafts with yarn box gets thrown across the floor, but the mom picks it up and she brings it back to her son. She says, you have to open the box, see what's in the box. And inside the fun with yarn box is an Xbox with a few extra games, a few extra controllers in it. The mom wasn't trying to play a dirty trick on her son, and she explains, I couldn't fit all of this into the box that I had, so I had to put it in this other box so it would all fit, but you have to open the box. And here's the message for us. Before you stomp out of the room and slam the door because you don't like what you see on the box, take time to open the box and see what God has inside for you. It may be that the box that you're looking at is the only box that God could fit all the things in. So it's not maybe always pleasant, but wait and see what's inside the box. What's so special about the story of Ruth is that it's different from all the other stories that we've looked at because there doesn't seem to be some great miracle, some great act of God. Abraham had an audible voice. Moses had a burning bush. Noah had an ark. Jonah had a whale. You don't see those kind of things when you read through the book of Ruth. But you get to the end of the story, and here's what you know without a doubt. God is at work. And that's the message of the story. God is at work. It may feel like it's too late. It may seem like it's too broken. But God is at work. It doesn't seem obvious. It doesn't seem dramatic. It's not immediate. But God is at work. So see what's in the box. And the box you're looking at today may be labeled widow, divorced, cancer, fired, abused, infertile. But don't let that be your story. Your story does not have to be about loss. Your story can be about redemption. Give God a chance to work. You know, when we get to this time of invitation every week, it's really the same invitation. God has said, I love you. I'm going to give my life for you to pay for your sins. I'm the only one that can set you free. Then we have to take the next step. Today, when we sing the song of invitation here in just a moment, there's two rooms on each side, the decision point room. And if you want to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, you take the first step toward that room as we sing. And there's somebody there who would say, I can help lead you in this. Maybe life's just so confusing, you're just going, well, I don't want to leave here without someone praying for me today. Then you take that step. Somebody in one of those rooms would love to pray with you today. But don't hesitate. If you need to make a decision, do it now. Let's stand together and sing.